This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay, and today my guest is Rich Viodas, an author, a speaker, a pastor at New Life Fellowship in Elmhurst, Queens, New York. Thank you so much, Rich, for being my guest today. Lisa, so good to connect with you. Thanks for uh, the invitation. I'm glad it worked out and look forward to a good conversation with you. Me too. I I usually don't get books that relate to church, which is kind of what I thought your book was about more or less. But then when it got on sale in Kindle, I just jumped at the chance and (laughs) soaked it up immediately and realized just how powerful for my heart's cry, spiritual formation. This was an incredible book. And I'm I'm speaking to my audience here when I say this, and I tell you that at the level of Eugene Peterson with the pastoral heart for spiritual formation, if Eugene Peterson had an idea and a sense, a sensibility for racial justice, for multicultural understanding, this is just such a fabulous book, and I just today recommended it to my pastors. Mm-hmm. I, I would love it if this was required reading for every pastor going through seminary. That would be perfect. So thank you so much for writing this. And um, I know it's gone into paperback recently. So since it's been, I guess, a year now, how has your book been received? You know, I mean, it's one of the things that I am uh, grateful for, amazed by, you know, when, when someone writes a book, at least so I've heard, this is my first book, you never know what you're going to get. You never Mm. know the perception. The reason why I thought it would, uh, resonate in lots of people is because the church I pastor uh, is such a diverse congregation, uh, people from over 75 nations. Uh, and so in, in many ways, what whatever resonates here, I think it's going to find resonance outside because uh, the world in many respects is represented in our congregation. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been received well. Um, uh, the, the cool thing is seeing it in seminaries and in colleges and in churches. And the best part of it is uh, for some reason, high school students have been reading it as well. Wow. So to hear um, 15 and 16-year-olds huh. uh, reading about the Deeply Formed Life uh, has been a great joy. Yeah. So it's called, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, The Deeply Formed Life, Five Transformative Values to Root Us in the Way of Jesus. And there's these five values that are unexpected pathways. I'll mention them right up front, and then we can dive into a few of them. Contemplative Rhythms, Racial Justice, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and finally, missional presence. And those are five unexpected things. I, I think for some people, they're not going to think, oh, yeah, sure, that that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I especially loved the contemplative. Well, all, all of them are fascinating and, and so important. I expected some of the ones that have to do with community and the external things like justice, stuff Mm -hmm. that we know is really problematic, but sometimes the stuff that gets avoided is is the interior looking things, the contemplative Mm. rhythms and the interior examination, which is so powerful. And you really go personal and explain some of your own journey with this, some of the things Mm. you were blind to. And I appreciate your vulnerability. When you say to be deeply formed is to regularly come back to a different rhythm, a rhythm Mm -hmm. marked by communion, reflection, and a life-giving pace that enables us to offer our presence to the present moment. Maybe you can speak to how your view changed on that. 
sometimes pastors are focused on different things and maybe mm. this contemplative rhythm was a shift for you. You know, it's 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 interesting. My the shift came rather quickly for me as a mm. follower of Jesus. And the reason I, I it, it happened for me is because my grandfather, who uh, lived down the block from me, took me under his wings mm. uh, the first eight months after I became a Christian. So, I've, uh, you know, I'm 42 years old. I was 19 when I became a Christian. And my grandfather, uh, you know, I said, hey, I had some questions about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And he asked me to come uh, day after day to study with him the scripture. Mm-hmm. But what I saw in his life was someone who was given to contemplation, who was given to silence. I mean, he, we come, I, I came, became a Christian in a Pentecostal tradition. Mm-hmm. And so uh, great emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit, on encounters with God. And while he had all of that, he also had a very contemplative disposition uh, that opened him up. So I saw my grandfather. I like to think that his bedroom where I had a lot of conversations with him was my first monastery Mm. because uh, we were studying together, holding silence together, praying together. Mm. And so the the first days of my conversion to Christ, I was introduced to silence and solitude. So for some pastors and some Christians, their lives have to get so out of control before right. they change and go, oh my goodness, I need the contemplative tradition. Yeah. For me, my grandfather was so instrumental in helping me to hold together a life that is active and engaged in the world, but one that comes from a very uh, deep contemplative center. And uh, that's one of the great gifts that he gave me. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, moving on to the second value of racial justice, On page 59, you say, one of the many reasons we need to read the prophets is because they speak to the public dimension of God's love Mm. and racial and racial justice and reconciliation remain two of the most urgent matters of faith and public witness. You say on page 46, in this respect, the cross of Christ isn't just a bridge that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down walls that separate us. Mm. And I want you to speak a little bit to this public dimension of faith and witness. Obviously, in your church where there's 75 nationalities represented mm-hmm. and many languages spoken, it's going to be a lot different than where I am in this rural, very white-centric, conservative church. Mm. But it is still the heart of God and what the prophets speak to. Maybe you could delve into that a little bit. Yeah, to talk about love... Uh, as a Christian, uh, it, it cannot be reduced to sentimentalism mm-hmm. and to privatizing, um, you know, feelings. It, it must be given expression in the larger dimensions of life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was Cornel West who said that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot when I read that statement of, yes, this, there is a public dimension of love that's required. Now, when people usually hear the word justice, they're not thinking about love. They're thinking about retribution. They're thinking about the courtroom. They're thinking about people getting their their punishment. And of course, there's a, a place for that in larger society. But from a Christian perspective, uh, justice at its core is how do we offer what is due to every person, which is love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it comes to racism, when it comes to all the other isms that keep people separated from each other, to follow Jesus in this world is to pay close attention to the areas of fragmentation, to the areas where hierarchies of value are established and created, and in his name begin to 
tear them down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that image of the gospel for me, and when I teach our congregation of, you know, it usually it's God is on one side, we're on the other. There's a huge chasm between us and it's the cross that becomes a bridge. And I think it's helpful insofar that, you know, we're talking about our relationship with God, but it doesn't, that image doesn't do enough to talk about the radical horizontal reality of what it means to follow Jesus and proclaim the gospel, which is why it is, yes, a sledgehammer. And for me, that's Ephesians chapter two, where the dividing wall of hostility has come down in the name of Jesus. And so as a Christian, and this book is essentially saying to pay attention and focus on the gospel is not just a vertical reality. There's also this horizontal dimension that we must pay close attention to. One of the things that you put that is so potent, I think, that is missed by a lot of people. When I say privilege, I'm trying to say that people who who look like me, who are white, lighter skinned, white skinned, don't have to necessarily even think about privilege. So really potent parts of it was saying that sometimes people who are white passing or white Mm -hmm. will think of injustice or racial injustice as individual. Like, I'm not doing something racially harmful. I'm not, you know, saying slurs. I'm, I'm not, you know, I have friends that are of different colors. But when people of color or Black people or refugees or something of color think of it, they are not thinking on an individual basis. They're thinking of systems and hierarchies Mm -hmm. to which they have no claim and that are against them. And maybe could you flesh that out a little bit as you do in the book? Yeah. You know, when when most people think... Uh, or many people, I would say, think about uh, racism. They they tend to think about obvious, mm-hmm. overt uh, mm-hmm. words that are used or actions uh, that treat someone as inferior. And mm-hmm. so, if if it's not obvious and it's not overt and intentional, uh, the, the rationale is um, you can't blame me for anything because I didn't mean to, or um, you know, you took it the wrong way. Where, but to talk about racism and racial justice and reconciliation, I think needs to happen uh, at least on three levels. I actually talk about it on six levels, but first on three levels, it has to be considered individually, interpersonally, and institutionally. And and I think scripturally to talk about the fragmentation and brokenness of our world, uh, we see the scriptures uh, attend to those three areas of individual sin and interpersonal sin and institutional sin. We, we have to broaden the conversation to, yes, include our individual acts, but also to consider the, the systems that are created and established uh, because of our individual acts. Uh, beyond that, you know, I, I will just say for your listeners, whenever I talk about racism and justice and reconciliation, I think in order to have the kind of conversation that we need to make progress, I think we need to address it on at least six levels because it's such a massive issue. Uh, And so for me, those six levels are, we have to look at it theologically, historically, sociologically, ecclesiologically, politically, and formationally. And by politically, I mean, we have to talk about policy. Mm -hmm. Those six areas, I think, are what's required, whether in a local context, uh, in a regional context, whether we're talking about schools, whether we're talking about churches, whether we're talking about the way that public policy, uh, those are the le- the layers that need to be addressed if we're going to make uh, any progress, because it must move beyond the individual uh, approach or layer, because that's not the 
the full story, just our individual lives. There's something deeper be, beyond that. Right. We can be really great people, but it doesn't mean that systems are going to change that harm others. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Moving down to the next value, interior examination. This is really powerful too. And you talk about three categories that should be examined, patterns, trauma, and scripts. And mm -hmm. they seem to almost overlap, but you go over this really well in the book. People have to get this. There's so much jammed in the, into this book. It's <laughs> unreal. It's, it's beautiful. I love the line, page 94, we use God to run from God and we use God to run from ourselves. Uh, so powerful. And, and I think about, you know, sometimes we're so busy doing work for God. We're busy running away from ourselves and, and any kind of interior examination. Um, you talk about sin in these two ways. I, I would love to read out from page, I guess it's page 99 and, and 102. Mm -hmm. Sin is a principle of captivity to a power that permeates and contaminates our human reality. And I love that kind of extra look at sin in mm. more powerful ways that really taint and distort our lives. The other one is sin is the word Christians use to name not simply our failed acts, but also our inner and outer captivity. Mm. It's really, really well said. Would you like to speak to sin in any kind of other ways that, as it relates to interior examination? Yeah, you, you know, first of all, to talk about sin, uh, it, it can be very difficult because mm -hmm. people typically reduce sin to uh, behavior and to the bad things that they do or the things they know they should do, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. And we miss out. Fleming Rutledge has, I think, been one of the contemporary theologians that has helped me to see uh, sin as a power, mm. a sin as capital S, not just something that we do. And it's only when we can really identify the larger sin that we can make sense of our sins. Mm -hmm. uh, usually people try to make sense of their sins without looking at the larger power behind it. And so they think if only if I could just change some of my behaviors, uh, I'll be done with sin. But sin is again, something outside of us. It's a power that's being wielded in this world. Mm. Uh, and so part of that that power is to separate, not just us from God, but us from ourselves. Mm. And to live within a world that's, in, that's dominated by the power of sin will lead to all kinds of fragmentation. And uh, I, I have found that to be true for my own self mm. of now I'm separated from myself. Mm. So we're not just getting at something related to self-awareness. We're getting at there's a larger power that I think to, to follow Jesus is to recognize um, that I'm called to live in truth and reality and wholeness. Uh, and because he has dealt definitively with sin, there's no need for me to uh, move away from myself, uh, that I can be joined to myself in some really meaningful ways. But yeah, I mean, that's in some ways how I've tried to connect sin to interior examination. Mm -hmm. And with that statement, yeah, it's, it's very easy to use God to run from God. And I think that's part of the uh, being overpowered by sin, where that gets all connected to the ways that we avoid God in ourselves. Yeah. You use the example too of David in Psalm 139 and how he is examining himself. He's asking God to reveal uh, himself to himself mm -hmm. so that, you know, God already knows, of course, everything, but sometimes we're really self-deluded or blinded and <laughs> he's right. asking, I'm you know, very, I don't know everything about me. So, sure. so sure. God, show me me. 
Yes, yes. And then it's going to be troubling sometimes, deeply troubling sometimes. <laughs> and yet there's also parts of us that are that are very um, endearing, maybe even too. Like it, I think that we're we're really mixed bags. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. So sometimes um, the more I learn about myself, and also I have more compassion too. It's not just all this ugly stuff that comes up. There's sometimes lovable stuff, <laughs> and so, uh, once in a while, <laughs> popping to the surface. <laughs> Moving on to sexual wholeness now, this this is the one that that threw me for a curveball because I wasn't really expecting it, and it's so well stated. Um, there's so much here that it talks about um, seeing our bodies, integrating ourselves, uh, mm-hmm. understanding pleasure appropriately, understanding the different kinds of sexuality, sensuality. We probably don't have time. This could be its own podcast for sure. I think. <laughs> But the one thing I kind of wanted to zoom in on a little bit is around page 138, and it's where you talk about sobriety. It says, I'm not referring to abstinence and willpower. I'm referring to honesty. In a given day, we are bombarded with temptations to objectify others. We emotionally use people to fill the loneliness we carry. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, sobriety is living in... Uh, in honesty, really. Uh, and, and it requires us, I think, in many ways to, uh, first of all, name the longings and passions that we have. Yeah. It was Ron Rollheiser, one of my favorite authors, who said that the church exists to help the world. One of the reasons the church exists is to help the world make sense of its longings. Mm-hmm. Sadly, instead of the church helping the uh, world make sense of its longings, what we end up doing is um, repressing and suppressing our longings. Mm-hmm. Whereas to even talk about sensuality and sexuality is done in whispers, mm-hmm. often in churches, which mm-hmm. leads to all kinds of acting out. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's objectification, whether it's addiction uh, across the board, part of the honesty is not just about my own struggles, but about my longings mm-hmm. and my passions. I, you know, I, I just led our leaders, uh, a bunch of our leaders, um, uh, just this past weekend, a three-hour course on sexual wholeness. Mm-hmm. And as we were diving into a whole lot of this, and part of, a big part of my teaching had to do with delight and passions and longings. Mm-hmm. If we don't start there, um, we're going to end up in very um, uh, repressive environments. And so... Mm-hmm. In the, in the book, I, I, I draw from this uh, categorization of sexuality where I talk about three diets, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the starvation diet, this fast food diet, and the banquet. Mm-hmm. And the starvation diet is, is a diet that's marked by repression mm-hmm. and marked by suppression. And in the church, that's what usually happens. And then there's all this acting out mm-hmm. and secrecy and bondage. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, so, but sobriety is not just living in honesty about our own struggles. I think it must begin by naming first our longings. And ultimately, God is the one who's going to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. But at the same time, God's called us to community and to relationship and to uh, healthy touch and uh, all the rest. Mm-hmm. But I, I think sobriety is a really good place to begin. Sadly, people hear that and they hear repression, but that's not exactly what a sobriety mm-hmm. is. It's living honestly about our longings. 
you say that a lot of times our longings are always put into this bucket of like genital sexuality that that it's kind of plopped into this one area when there's a lot of us as human beings that those longings can be met outside of that one category and maybe you can talk to like people who are single and are not ready for um, a sexual relationship or something like that those longings are sometimes seen, as you say, antithetical to a robust spirituality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might wind up repressing them or having a double life or whatever the case may be. But how do you wind up approaching that uh, with people who who have the same desires as anybody else, no. but they don't want to, you know, feel shamed or sinful? Yeah. You know, there are a lot of singles at New Life. A lot of married. Actually, half of our church is single. Half of our church is uh, is married, and the the categorization of genital sexuality and social sexuality actually got that from Marva Dawn, who's a theologian. She wrote a wrote a book called Sexual Character, which is a uh, written in the early '90s, and I thought she did a great job uh, with it. And she, uh, one of her quotes is she says that. It, it seems that much of the sexual behavior in U.S. society is grounded in the failure uh, to distinguish between our profound needs for support on the level of social sexuality and the attraction of exciting genital stimulation. And so the, the idea is, and this she wrote this in the 90s, where she said that the, the genuine needs in the realm of social sexuality are heightened by the non-intimacy of a of the technological world that we live in now that's crazy wow. to in the 90s Goodness. but what she's trying to distinguish is she says many people run to genital sexuality because they have not had spaces for social sexuality and social sexuality is marked by vulnerability mutuality healthy touch compassion belonging uh, and when when we don't have appropriate spaces where our our soul our souls are very shy where our mm-hmm. souls can come out and mm-hmm. be free to be received by others uh we often tend to run towards affections that are mm-hmm. you know expressed through bodily intimacy mm-hmm. and um and so for those I, I think what she's getting at and i think is an important corrective for our own day is what are the spaces for social intimacy, vulnerability, mutuality, and let's begin there. Uh, and so it, it's really a call to discernment in many ways, uh, which again, for many people in our congregation, this is something we're talking about on a regular basis and trying to give language to hmm. minimally delineating those two kind of sexualities to use the word, the phrase of Marva Dawn, I think is really needed for our ongoing discernment of how our body and sexuality, um, relate to our spirituality. Hmm. Yeah. And really what we're speaking of is intimacy and these emotional components that make us human, that that sometimes in our genitally sexualized yeah. culture is about objectification and body parts and mm-hmm. orgasm and things like that. It isn't taking into account the very human needs of connection and intimacy. Right you know, we'll jump ahead to the other stuff, which is pleasure, mm-hmm. pleasurable, but it doesn't meet all the needs. And, and also I think, um, I don't know if this relates or not, but I, I feel like there's a connection between people who 
in, in a younger generation wind up putting on their profiles with Twitter that, you know, they are asexual, which is fine and they may well be, but it's in a way almost seems like a signal, like, I don't want to jump to this immediately. Right. I need some time to build a relationship and get emotionally involved. And I'm not ready for a quick night of genital sexuality immediately. You know, I'm wondering if that's the way a younger generation protects themselves. I think we're seeing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And and part of it is a a fundamental narrowing of what sexuality is. Yeah. Where where Jesus, Jesus never had sexual intimacy with someone. uh, And yet Jesus was the most sexual human being uh, to ever live. Why? Because he was so deeply connected and bonded Mm -hmm. and vulnerable and open and gave himself to mutuality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you don't, I mean, kind of the language is, and this sounds so, so countercultural in so many ways that, mm-hmm. first of all, you don't need to be married to live a full human life and a fulfilled mm-hmm. life. And, and neither do you have to engage in that kind of, that level of sexual intimacy to live that kind of full life. And I think Jesus, and people would say, well, he's the son of God. Well, he, he's fully mm-hmm. human as well. And he knows what it's like mm-hmm. to, to be human with all the struggles therein. Mm-hmm. But I think I think you're hitting something really important related to the narrowing of how sexuality is typically understood. Yeah. I always think about the women in Jesus's life. Would he would have approached them and looked at them and interacted with them in ways that maybe they would have never experienced in their lifetime mm-hmm. and how attractive that would be in yeah. in just a, an intimacy that mm-hmm. I can get close to you. I don't have to be fearful. I don't have to think you're after something or you want something from me. You just want to be with me. And now I want to be with you. Mm-hmm. It's so beautiful. And I feel like our culture is so starving for that mm-hmm. kind of closeness. I'm so glad that you bring that up in the book. I think that could be its own book. <laughs> and so <laughs> I would... Uh, I would love to see more written in, in those terms. Maybe we can just go on to the final value, which is missional presence. And you also mentioned about keeping the Sabbath. I, I really liked how you intertwine that. On page 217, you say, so to come full circle, when I speak of being deeply formed, I'm specifically referring to a way of being in the world that's marked by new rhythms, contemplative presence, and interior awareness which results in lives that work for reconciliation, justice, and peace while seeing the sacredness of all life. Can you speak a little bit to what is meant by missional presence? Uh, In in many ways, missional presence for me, Robert Mulholland said it this way. Um, He was a, a New Testament professor at Asbury Seminary. And he said, there's two ways of being in the world. The first way is being in the world for God. The second way is being in God for the world. And there's a fundamental difference. There are a lot of people who are in the world for God. Um, you know, they have their particular issues, their particular areas where they uh, want to get behind and the areas that they think, you know, they're representing God for. And there might be some truth there. The problem is you can be in the world for God without God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do it without having a life of union and communion and prayer with God. But the other way to be in God for the world is a, is a radically different 
way of starting and ending because it begins with God. It begins with communion, abiding, intimacy, out of which we are offering our lives to the world. And so in many ways, missional presence is about my being, my doing flowing from my being, the very quality of my life, that who I am is missional, uh, is communicating something of God's character. We, when, we t- when we think of missional, we often think of um, you know, doing good deeds and giving out evangelism tracts or helping the hungry, all the things that I think are really important. But I think what I'm trying to do is swing the pendulum a little bit to say our very presence is to be missional. Uh, the way we react to moments of anxiety, the way we react to points of division in our world. How, how is our presence being missional? So that, that's missional presence in one way. In another way, I think of missional presence as, I mean, as simple as this. I, I am continuing in my life what was started by Jesus. And so whatever Jesus gave himself to, to be his follower and to engage in mission, is to take his cues and do the same. And so whether it's Jesus, he says, I came not to uh, be served, but to serve. I, I came to preach the gospel. I came to seek and save those who were lost. I mean, Jesus, we, we get our cues from Jesus. And missional presence, and in, in, I think in the easiest way to think of it is trying to continue what Jesus already started in the power of the Spirit. But I think part of my book is trying to, yes, I talk about justice and uh, preaching the gospel and faith and work and the connection between that. But at its core, it's I want my doing for God to flow out of my being with God. Mm-hmm. And that plays into why you have something in there about keeping the Sabbath. It is kind of this different kind of rhythm of life yeah. where productivity isn't what we're about you know, joining in, co-opting with culture, but this is our life with God. The the, the chapters at the beginning of uh, contemplative rhythms and ending with missional presence, mm-hmm. in, in many ways, that's the tension that our church holds to on a regular basis, the tension between the monastery and the mission field. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Henry Nouwen, I remember him reading, he telling a story about Jesus and his disciples and, and how he would go up the mountain and come back down and he would go up for intimacy with the father and then he'd come back down and offer uh, words of power and healing and um, receiving those who were excluded by society and then he'd go back up to the mountain again and then come back down. There's some of us who go up to the mountain and we don't come down mm-hmm. and then there's some who go down and never go back up mm-hmm. and, and I think the missional presence combined with the monastic contemplative rhythms mm-hmm. is to hold on to that um, uh, you know, in philosophical terms, it's this dialectic, this, 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 this back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. I need the monastery and the monastery pushes me to the mission field mm-hmm. and the mission field is supposed to push me back to the monastery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, that's life in Christ at its core. Yeah, beautifully said. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to speak to in the book to um, give listeners a taste? Yeah, you know, when, when, I, when I wrote the book, Initially, um, I, I wrote it because uh, of pastoral concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, we our church. I would get a lot of questions from congregants saying, "You know, when you say contemplative rhythms, what do you mean? When you talk about mm-hmm. sexual wholeness or racial justice, what do you mean?" Um, I started getting all these 
long emails. And so <laughs> by the time I finished writing a response, I'm thinking this could have been a chapter in a book. And so I should probably spend my time writing so I could just tell everyone, here's what I mean by these things. And so it, in one way, I wrote it out of pastoral concern. Uh, in another way, and, and this might sound a bit uh, over the top a bit, but I, I, in many ways, I'm trying to offer an ambitious reframing of spiritual formation for our generation. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm trying to resist formational compartmentalization mm-hmm. where, uh, and what I mean by that is some folks might think, you know, well, prayer is for me, but the racial justice stuff, I, I don't, maybe, maybe that's for somebody else. Or the interior stuff, I don't know, that sounds too much like psychobabble, but I like that justice stuff you're talking about. And what I'm saying is I'm offering something, a paradigm that needs to be held together, that Jesus cares about all these areas. And because he cares about it, uh, we should care about it as well. These are not, what I'm offering is not an exhaustive treatment of spiritual formation, not, not by any means but it flows out of our congregation and areas that we have wrestled with for many, many years. And so, yeah, I, and I think I'm trying to offer uh, an ambitious reframing of formation for our generation. Wonderful. I hope that we could maybe end from page 86, the, a prayer of confession and, and speak a little bit to this common prayer book and um, this role that it has played. I, I love this piece of your book because it, it literally puts us on the same page as we try to confess to each other and and try to get right with each other and and also right with God. I realized on my sabbatical in 2019 that the world is increasingly fragmented and, you know, the, the level of pain we're seeing in our homes because of political division, racial hostility, it's just so sad. And, and I thought the church needs to be the place where we're able to confess our sins and not just confess our sins regularly, but receive and offer forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Prior to my sabbatical, we came back, we, we, we would do it from time to time, but we said, mm. let's make it every single week mm. that we're going to gather here and we're going to confess our sins together. For other churches, that's probably, yeah, that's what we do. For us, it was a big shift. Mm because we wanted to name something important. In our society, it's very easy to scapegoat. It's very easy to point the finger outward. For the Christian, I mean, the church should be the place where it's so easy to confess our sins and repent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we sh- and we should be a model to the world around us who doesn't do this really well, mm-hmm. confess sins and repent. And so, yeah, we made that shift in 2019. And it, it's in our worship gatherings, it's quite a formative moment for us because we rehearse our week. So it's part of this, it's a little bit of an examine as well. Mm. We rehearse our week. Where have we sinned against others? Where have we been sinned against? Where have we used our words to hurt others? Where have words been used against us? And as we rehearse that in the presence of God, doing somewhat of an examine and then praying the prayer of confession, I don't know exactly how it's changed our congregation, but I know it has changed our congregation mm-hmm. because we're confronted regularly, weekly with the truth that we are in desperate need of grace from God mm-hmm. and we are in desperate need to offer that grace as well. So mm-hmm. um, that was a significant shift we made a few years ago. 
one of the criticisms of evangelicalism or conservative Christianity, sometimes I'm sure you've heard this plenty of times, is that it can be, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, right? Yeah. And I think that a lot of that can be mitigated as we become acquainted with with our shortcomings, which is to become acquainted better with God's grace. Yeah. And that really is the prayer of confession is really where the rubber meets the road. We really have to confront who we are and where we've messed up and where we failed others and where others have failed us. It's kind of the the reckoning, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to see a congregation getting squared away like that. And yeah, and, I, and I can't tell you how many times in a week on a weekly basis when I'm leading this or one of our pastors is leading us in the, and I'm you know in the front row with my hands open. And how many times the Holy Spirit will remind me of something I said or something I didn't say that by the end of that service, I just know, Lord, I better do something about this today because this isn't right what I said or this isn't right what I didn't say. So um, there is, I think, something for us here, for every church uh, in practicing confession in this way. Well, I'll draw us to a close. May God bless your book and your family and your ministry. Thank you so much, Rich. Thanks for having me, Lisa.